Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by interim pastor Derek Gecki. He is preaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. Today we're finishing a very short two-part series on the nature of Thanksgiving. Last week, uh, Ricky Padilla uh, took us through how God blesses us, even in our suffering, and how the hope he provides through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can help us endure. Uh, this week, we're going to look at how we can respond to God's love and generosity, uh, particularly in a way that brings him joy and honor. Today's passage comes to us from 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter Paul wrote to a community of believers um, who were actually enduring well, but in a place of persecution. They were, he had established them, he had to go away, and he heard that he was worried that they were going to crumble because he'd heard about how bad it was, um, and then it turned out that they were doing good. And he was like, great, here's my, uh, my encouragement. This passage comes near the end where he's encouraging them in ways to demonstrate their faith and cling to their hope. Uh, they've been doing well, but he's just trying to reiterate, hey, things are going to get rough either way. Now, in this passage, uh, I do think some of us might zero in on a verse that uh, Western Christianity has tended to slap on bumper stickers, maybe some inspirational office posters, Give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, got a, I have a suspicion that even if you haven't read 1 Thessalonians, you might have seen that verse quoted or displayed somewhere. And usually it's tossed at us like some kind of blanket Christianese solution to when we're having a rough patch. Like, are you having a bad day? Well, you just got to give thanks. You can't sleep, count your blessings, you know. That's not what Paul's telling us to do, okay? Now, we've, we might have, you know, adopted it and turned it into we're going to grit our teeth and pull good vibes out of the air because, oh, dang it, we're Christian, and that's what we're going to do. That's not what Paul's asking. That's not what Paul's telling the Thessalonians to do. Uh, he's asking them and us to do a number of things, and this constant gratitude is a part. But I would like to put forth today that if we look a little closer, we can see this passage is actually describing lives characterized by gratitude, not just pushing ourselves to feel it, but actually this is just how grateful people live. This goes beyond feeling thankful to what I would like to call living in brazen, shameless thanksgiving. And in some ways, as we're going to go into in this passage, uh, this is kind of like God's love languages. Has everyone heard of the, of the love languages? Like some of us like affirmation, some of us like gifts, um, things of that nature. So I, I'd like to put forth that I think what Paul's describing here are people who are loving God the way God wants to be loved. Now we're going to look at this in three parts, what this, what this translates into. First, we're going to look at how we can live in thanksgiving through regarding others, repenting of ourselves, and rejoicing in our new position. So how we regard others, how we repent of ourselves, and how we can rejoice in our new position. If you'll bow your heads with me, please, I'd like to say a prayer over this. Father, we've just come through a week where we celebrate all that you have blessed us with, and we might have indulged in some low-cost items on Friday, which we ask you to forgive us of our greed. But as we go into this passage, um, we just pray that you would open our hearts, help us see what you are trying to teach the Thessalonians, and then from there, 
through the rest of the church's history how to love you and love your people in a grateful way. In Jesus' name we pray. Please let these words be yours, not mine. Amen. All right, the first part of this passage, we're going to look at how we regard others and how that matters to God and what Paul's asking us to do. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13a, we're going to focus on a specific group of people, those who guide us. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. All right. Let's cut to the chase. Let's be frank. This should be an awkward verse for anyone in church leadership to bring up, much less preach through. Uh, considering my position, it's awkward, okay? It's going to be... If, if you ever hear someone preach this and it's not awkward for them, there's the door. Go, run, because they're going to probably be using this verse to abuse their position or enforce their own way. That being said... Let's take a step back and clarify what I think this passage says. The, the term respect, okay? Paul is saying respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Respect does not mean obey without question, okay? I think a lot of folks might read it that way, especially with the follow-up word, they're going to admonish you. We'll get to that in a second. Um, it doesn't, but respect does not mean obey without question. Yes, they are called to admonish us, and that can mean to scold, like a parent with a child, but it can also mean to give advice in a friendly, gentle, earnest manner. And if they're doing things right, I would say, one, anyone in spiritual authority who's admonishing you would do it that way, and two, it should be for your good, not their preference. If they're doing it right, it's for your good, not their preference. Now, chances are people in church authority are not going to get that right all the time. They might think it's for your good, but it's really the way they like it. Paul is telling you to respect them. And you can respect, you can hold your ground respectfully and in love without agreeing with what they're asking of you. You can do that... Um, particularly with community, having other people with you so that, so that you're not, like, isolated. Um, and that can take time and prayer to figure out how to do that well. But Paul's saying that's, that is legit. You can do that. Paul is also asking us to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Okay, now I'm going to say some stuff here. Please note, this is not me letting you know, oh, the sorrows I have, how hard I have it. I'm but in general, and this is mostly for the folks that I think are um, working behind the scenes in our church, church work can be hard. And often it's thankless because most of the time the work is done behind the scenes. Um, I think of administration, RAV team who are doing a phenomenal job making sure everything runs, but we never turn around. <laughs> They're right there. Can we, can we give them a <laughs> Yeah. They get, to, they get here to church early, they stay after service to take stuff down, but when do we have a chance to thank them? When do we have a chance to acknowledge their work? And honestly, when it comes to church work, most of the time, the only time we notice it is when something's going wrong. I would compare it to a body part that hurts. Um, if your knee is working great, you don't think about it. But if it hurts, oh, 
All you can talk about is that darn knee. So if something in the church is not working, our tendency is, oh, that one community group in Southside, I tell you. <laughs> it's just, it just doesn't work. I don't know what we're going to do. We might have to cut them off. I don't know. But if it's working fine, are we actively thanking our community group leaders? Are we thanking our deacons for the the day in, the day out that they pray for us. And I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm just trying to call to attention that this is stuff that's easy for us to forget unless it's not working. But if it is working, that's, there's a lot of work that goes into keeping a church going. Most church like staff, they don't have the privilege of doing a nine to five because most of the time we're needed after five <laughs> when you guys are not at work. And again, I'm fine. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying other folks are working really, really hard at this church, at other churches. And another aspect of church work that I think makes it more challenging is typically, I think it's easy for us to think that if we don't get it right 100% of the time, it's not just that we're getting a bad job, it's that souls are at stake. I want to reiterate, I want to make it clear, I think that's a lie. I think that's a lie from the enemy that if we don't do a great job, people don't get saved because of what we did. That's not what the Bible teaches. But I think it's a temptation for us to think. If we're serving, if we're in ministry, if we're leading a CG group, if we become a deacon, if we become an elder, that's that temptation. But I would like to continue on our passage to call out, I don't think the church was intended to be a hierarchy of perfect people at the top and then everyone else at the bottom. And if the perfect people get it wrong, the whole thing crumbles. That wasn't the intent. That wasn't the form. Moving down to 1 Thessalonians 5, 13b through 14. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So in that first section, we were kind of looking at Paul telling us how to respect those who are actively working to shepherd us. But here... He's asking us to shepherd each other. Notice the reuse of the word admonish. Now he's telling all of us, admonish each other, admonish the idol. Now, when he's saying admonish the idol, that just boils down to encouraging each other to live like God wants us to. But that's an aspect of shepherding. What's the goal of shepherding in a church sense? I think we get the idea with sheep. Um, but in a church sense, shepherding is the goal is to help each other grow closer to God to embrace the gospel, and to keep going through the rough times. And if you look through what Paul is calling us out, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, be patient with all of us, those are all steps on how to love each other and help each other get closer to God when things are rough. Discipleship, the way it was intended, is a communal process. And we all need others to help us grow, even those of us in church leadership. At the end of the day, we're all sheep. We have one good shepherd, Jesus, but the rest of us are sheep. Now, some of us get handed a crook and a, and a hood, but, you know, we're still sheep. We don't have opposable thumbs. We're just, we're on our hind legs trying to direct the, the flock. But the best we can say is, repent, repent. Like, doesn't make us any less of a sheep. How does this transfer to giving God thanks? If we're going to actively love each other and work to shepherd each other, how does, that, how does that give thanks to God? 
When we recognize and respect the people God has placed in our lives to guide us closer to him, we show him with our actions, not just our words, that we're grateful for that. If we look at the people around us and see them as gifts, not complications, and we treat them as such, that's receiving the gift with grace. That's receiving the gift, the gift with thanks. And we are also showing the world, if we do this right, if we find that balance, we're actively showing the world a community, the church, where love reigns supreme and authority is sanctified and beneficial, not feared or abused. We show the world a community where love reigns supreme and authority is sanctified and beneficial, not feared or abused. Now, yes, that responsibility falls on everybody, both church leaders to, re to make sure they don't abuse their power and the rest of us to back each other up when things get rough. Christ called out to us how this new community aesthetic would look to the world. In John 13, 34 through 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By loving and discipling each other, we show God our thanks through taking care of his family. And that's one of his love languages, is seeing us caring for each other the way he cares for us. Now, of course, things will go wrong. We're pretty good at screwing things up. The next verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So going back to how the world sees us from the outside in, how we treat others, especially other believers, but really everyone, that says volumes about what we actually believe and how true the gospel is to us. So what do we mean when we say someone's committed evil against us? So this verse opens up, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That implies evil was done. What do we mean, and I'm saying from a general sense, when we say someone's committed evil? Typically what this means is something has been stolen or ruined, whether that's possessions, health, safety, relationships, something has been stolen or ruined and a debt is owed. Now, usually when it's done to us, we look to two methods of collection on that debt. One is justice and the other is vengeance. Justice is about what's right and fair. It's a rebalancing of the scales. It's restoring what was lost as best as possible. And in many cases, God calls for us to seek justice. Vengeance is about punishment. It's about taking so much back from the offender that they either won't or can't hurt us again. And unfortunately, when people say they want justice, most of the time they want vengeance. Christians, however, are not called to seek repayment. We're instead called to love our enemies. So when someone takes from us, the Bible actually says, give them more. Oof, that's, that is rough. But let's see what, don't, don't freak out yet. When Paul says, always seek to do good to everyone, 
he does mean when they have done evil to us, even when we're still owed a debt. One, to not seek repayment, and two, to love them beyond that. How could anyone be expected to do this? Isn't, doesn't this sound like borderline abusive language? If someone hurts you, just keep on letting them do it. It's not what the Bible's saying, but this is what it boils down to from a Christian perspective, all right? If the gospel is true, and it is, then we humans have committed great evil against the creator and sustainer of the universe. We ruined his creation, and we robbed him of a loving, holy relationship with us. But instead of demanding that we pay back that debt, he took it on himself through the cross, and beyond that, gave us so much more. We're promised an eternity with God, if we are saved, where everything will be restored and glorified, including ourselves. That's not just a balancing of the scales. That goes way beyond paying the debt that we owe him. What God's asking us to do through Paul here and in other parts of scripture is he's asking us to extend to others the same grace that's been shown to us. I know that is challenging. I know that is hard. And I know in some cases that might feel impossible. But he's also trying to remind us through scripture that because of what Christ has done, because of the immense amount of blessing we're going to get on top of our debt is paid, we don't need to seek repayment because ultimately nothing can be taken away from us. In the grand scheme of things, we will be co-heirs with Christ. That means we're going to inherit everything, everything. Nothing that is taken from you now will not be restored and then improved upon in the kingdom of God. That is very hard to rest in and trust in right now. I know that. But because of what Christ has done, if we really believe it and we really accept it and we live by it, we can know that we are free to not hate. We are free to not need vengeance to some degree, to not even need justice for ourselves. I think there's plenty of calls in the Bible to seek justice for everyone else. Okay? Now, being grateful for these truths is one thing. But showing our gratitude by living it out, obeying what God has called us to do, that is another. It's a lot. It's kind of the reason that we still need each other to help encourage the weak, lift up those that are going through rough times. And it also involves some good old-fashioned repentance. Next, we move on to repenting of ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Now, I'm going to skip a couple verses. We'll go back to that bumper sticker verse in a bit. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, this is the end of this particular passage, and I'm going to put forth that all these items are actually tied to repentance. I think some of these will stand out immediately and be like, of course, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That, that makes sense as far as repentance. But what does this quench the spirit? What is this despise prophecy, don't despise prophecies stuff? What does that mean? Now, you also might be wondering right now, what does repentance have to do with being thankful? even to God. 
Well, first off, for those of you who are not familiar with the biblical sense of repentance, usually you might hear it and think that it's being sorry for your sins. And to some degree it is, to feeling guilt for what you've done, remorse. But what the Bible says when it uses the word repentance is not just to be sorry, but to turn away from those sins, to turn away from the direction that those sins have taken us. Now, with that in mind, let's, let's narrow in on these weird phrases, okay? First, we'll start with quenching the Spirit. Now, the word use of quench the Spirit, or don't quench the Spirit, might be confusing as quench can mean satisfy a thirst. I think Sprite had an ad campaign for a while where basketball players would quench their thirst with Sprite, which to me sounds like a horrible idea right after a basketball game, but, um, but it can mean to satisfy a thirst. So some of us might be like, wait, we don't satisfy the Spirit? No, no, no. Quench can also mean to extinguish. And some translations of the Bible just cut to the chase and translate it as to stifle. Do not stifle the Spirit. So what does this mean? How do we stifle the Spirit? Which I hope all of you recognize is the Holy Spirit. He didn't use the full term, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we mean the person of God that comes into our hearts when we are saved. Jesus called out for us what the Spirit's job is in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, the word Helper here is capitalized in many translations. It can also be translated as Advocate or Comforter. So what Christ is saying here is that it's the Holy Spirit's job to help us, to comfort us, to teach us, and to remind us about our faith, particularly about Jesus' words in Scripture, where he says, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So if the Spirit's job is to help, comfort, teach, and remind us, then when we stifle the Spirit, we're actively refusing help, comfort, teaching, and even the memory of Christ. That's what it means by stifling the Spirit. If repentance is turning away from our sins, then stifling the Spirit is turning away from our faith. That's what Paul's warning us not to do. Now, the next weird phrase, do not despise prophecies, test everything. The Holy Spirit fulfills his job, yes, by working in, in our hearts, speaking to our hearts directly, sure. But he also does it through the words and actions of those around us. Now, it's hard to say precisely what Paul means by the word prophecies. There's some commentators that think it's the old school supernatural gifting where people just start talking and, and say new stuff and it's directly from God. And um, like most of the old, you know, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament would be recognized that way. It was just like, you know, you get filled with the spirit and you start talking and it's God. Others equate prophecy modern day with preaching, which i.e. like guiding people through scripture and explaining what it says. Uh, that's, that's another way to consider prophecies. I'm of the mind that it could mean both. Uh, but I think the latter is what most often applies to us today. Unless you go to a really charismatic church, you might see some actual uh, live prophecy. Um, but with that in mind, if we're going to consider it primarily from our perspective preaching, what Paul's asking us to do are two things in regards to biblical teaching. One is to not dismiss what's being said, but two, to not accept it blindly. 
don't dismiss what's being said, and two, don't accept it blindly. When he says, do not despise prophecies, what he's talking about is dismissal. Now, dismissal of a, a sermon, a teaching, a book, it usually comes from an attitude of superiority. You hear a new teaching, you hear something you're not 100% on, on board with, and you just assume that you know better. So you disregard the teaching and you close your heart to whatever it's being said. I don't want to scare anyone who has that impulse, but that was the sin of the Pharisees. They had read the Bible, they had it memorized, and they decided they knew exactly what it meant. And when Jesus showed up and changed, you know, reinterpreted or, you know, helped, tried to get them to re-see what they had read, they closed their minds. They closed their hearts. They refused to learn because they knew better. A heart of dismissal can lead to us growing hard, callous, and dare I use the word, religious. And the world has had plenty of that. On the other side of the coin, we have blind acceptance. Now, blind acceptance, if we don't test everything, that usually comes from a spirit of complacency. Most often, it's we're more concerned about fitting in at whatever church we're in, whatever community group we're in. We're more concerned about not rocking the boat than being true to what Christ has said, being true to what the Bible says. This can lead to our hearts growing apathetic to the real gospel because we're just taking in whatever sounds good. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the prosperity gospel movement that's still raging throughout America. That came from hearts of complacency. Oh, you're just going to tell me that if God loves me, I'll get lots of money? Sure. I'm not going to bother researching it because you're the pastor. Now, we all run the risk of one of these directions. Either we lean more closed-minded or we lean more manipulable, malleable, open to whatever. Sometimes one turns into the other, like those conspiracy theorists out there. They start being very manipulable. They'll just accept whatever's online, and then suddenly that's gospel. Like, you can't change my mind now. This is truth. Regardless of which way our hearts lean, to avoid these traps, we all need to repent. Again, turn away from how we approach and receive God's word. The cure to both of these conditions is discernment. And that's a muscle that you just need to build. Discernment is, true discernment, is based in a humble but engaged relationship with Scripture. Like, you need to know what the Bible says for yourself if you're to adequately test what others claim it does. That's why we encourage active Bible reading all the time, not just as a chore, but so that you're prepared, so that you know God well, and you can both question and also be open to someone else's interpretation. Again, discipleship happens in a community. If we are not going to listen to someone else's thoughts and just cut them off, we run the risk of not seeing a side to God that we've never contemplated. And that can be a beautiful thing if you let it in. Now, at the, these are all, again, things to consider as we focus in on repentance. All right, These are all things we do need to repent of. But how does repentance translate into gratitude, into living in thanksgiving? Going back to what I said before, repentance isn't just about feeling remorse and turning away from what you've done. That is the core of it. 
But if you're turning away from something, that means you have to turn towards something else. It's just, that's physics. There. Repentance isn't about just turning away from your sin, feeling bad, feeling guilty, feeling shame. It's about turning towards Christ. It's about turning towards the gift. It's receiving the gift with open arms. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Martin Luther. Uh, I went to a Lutheran grade school, so I got to hear a lot about him. Um, he started the Protestant movement. He was originally part of the only church in town, Catholic church. And he read the Bible and started to realize that the way he interpreted it didn't match with what was being told. And to start the Protestant movement, he took 95 theses, which are like thesis, uh, that he wrote down on some paper and he nailed to the door of a church. And they were all basically just like complaints uh, against what the church said um, and statements of what he believed was biblical fact. And the first of his 95 theses read, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life. Sometimes he'll just, sometimes people will resummarize that as to live is to repent. To constantly, actively turn, not just away from our sins, but towards the gift of Christ. Repentance is accepting the gift of Christ and cling it, clinging to it with joy. To repent is to be thankful. It's an act of gratitude by its very nature. Too often, we're playing with our sins. And if, if you're going to look at the gift of Christ compared to our sins, it's like broken glass in a junkyard to an Iron Man suit. And I'm talking that Mark 1. I'm talking Avengers Endgame, nanotech. It can turn to whatever you want. And even that is just a pale comparison to what God has secured for us through Christ. So what am I talking about when I say the gift, Christ? What has he done for us? We're going to find, find out how to rejoice in our new position or the importance of rejoicing in our new position. Now, I've made a lot of references to God's love, his blessings and such, and that's all stuff to be thankful for. But unless you're steeped in the Christian faith, it probably sounds like generic religious sentimentality. If you're not hardcore, you've been going to church for years and years and years, you've read the Bible numerous times, I'm sure some of this sounds like, yeah, yeah, God loves me, it's great. Yeah, yeah, eternal life, it's great. What does the Bible say God has actually done for us? And why is that so important? Why, why would anyone get excited about it? Now, most of us, I think, will probably go right to John 3.16 for the simplest summation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, some of us, even those who've been to church for a while, might see eternal life and equate it with afterlife. Most religions promise some kind of life after death, different forms and such, but we might be tempted to see this and just shrug and think this is the Christian flavor of afterlife. But the Bible goes way beyond what we think of as life after death in relation to what Christ has done for us. Uh, in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul states that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are 
sons. Notice that present tense. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the Bible talks about eternal life, when it says a renewed heart, when it says you've been saved, what it's talking about is when we place our faith in Jesus, we are made sons that moment. And ladies, sons is more of a technical term. At that time, they were the ones that received the majority of inheritance. So we could say sons and daughters in a in a modern context. If we were back then, it wouldn't have made that. It, it, it's a historical thing. I just want to call it out. You are a son <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. <laughs> like, um, but we are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now, we are right now. In God's eyes, if you are saved, you are in his eyes who Christ was and is and will be. And this is because of what Christ has done, not what we do or try to do. Again, this isn't an afterlife that starts now. This isn't just living with God forever. It's living with him as his children, as loved and glorified by him as Christ is, which if you can wrap your head around that, if you can hear what I'm saying, that's a lot more than I think most of us assume outside of the church before we were saved when we hear the idea of eternal life. God empowers and frees us from the power of sin now doesn't always feel that way because we're still in a broken world, but he does. And because we can't earn this salvation, this adoption, this love, it doesn't depend on us, so we can't lose it. It's just secure, permanent. It's done. It is finished. So going back to that bumper sticker passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances. Then that, that is the will of God for us. So does that mean God just wants us to give him props all the time? Just after everything I've done for you, you better show me how grateful you are all day, every day. Paul's saying that God wants us to be so aware of what he's done and who we are because of it that we can't help but be grateful. We can't help but live in thanksgiving. Like, there's, there's no other response. It's not something we need to grit our teeth and force. This isn't about a behavioral mandate. It's about refocusing our hearts. Because our hearts are always leaning in the wrong direction, Paul's asking us to just keep pushing against that lean. And meanwhile, God's going to do everything he can to keep reminding us of how much he loves us and who we are in his eyes. He sent his son. He sends other people. He sends a spirit. He sends a scripture. And on top of that, he sends just blessings, just little nice little reminders of his love, like all the time, the stuff that we take for granted. Uh, the passage that Ricky preached on last week that ended with James 1, 16 through 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. A promotion at your job, a new job, 
a new friend, a smile in the hallway, a good cake. They're just little reminders, and they're constant if you look for them. Even the stuff that doesn't feel like anything can sometimes be the stuff that gets you through the day. And ch church, brothers and sisters, once you know Christ, if you know Christ, if you trust what he's done and accept it, we can always rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.